Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we begin our daily previews of the action at the 2024 Australian Open, particularly during week one of any major. There is so much action on the schedule each and every day. It's really difficult as a tennis fan to sort through what do I need to watch to have the best grasp of what might have unfolded on any given day of the event. Thus, I want to create these preview podcasts to make all of your lives a little bit easier as tennis fans. I want to offer my thoughts on the matches I think you need to watch each and every day, whether it's live, if you, like me, are nocturnal and plan to stay up for the action, or far more likely, if you are based here in the United States, you want to catch up on the action, whether it's in the morning, before you head to work, before you head to school, after work, after school, before the next day's action begins. Again, I'm going to try and make these episodes about 30 minutes in length, offer you the perfect primer for each and every day's action at the 2024 Australian Open. Of course, how am I going to go about doing that? Well, that's by discussing what, in my opinion, are the best matches on the calendar each and every day. The matches you must watch the highlights from just because I think the tennis is going to be stellar, whether it's two high-level players in action or a contrast in styles. I'm particularly entertained by a storyline we have been monitoring, not just the first two weeks of the season, but over the course of the past few months, if I see that storyline playing out within the course of a match, those are the sorts of things I want to bring to your attention before the start of each and every day. So again, going to shoot for like 30 minutes on these preview podcasts, have them each and every day, certainly throughout the course of the first week, going to have them through round four, probably through the quarterfinals as well. After that, all of our podcast coverage going to be focused on the mini break podcast feed. And just your reminder, over on the Mini Break podcast feed, you're going to be able to find recaps of each and every day's action throughout the course of the first major. That said, let's get into previewing day two of the Australian Open event. Of course, we've got 56, 56 different singles matches on the calendar tomorrow. It's going to be impossible for even me to watch each and every match. Now, of course, I will go about watching the highlights from everything, and I do want to give a massive shout-out right away to the Australian Open YouTube channel. If you are not familiar with their work, they'll have at least a three-minute highlight package for every match that gets played, I believe, in singles throughout the course of this event. They are certainly one of the best in the business we have in terms of turning the tennis we see unfold each and every day into content for tennis fans to enjoy after the fact. So again, don't panic if you don't have the time or capability to watch these matches. If you don't have an ESPN Plus account, you'll get highlights for free available on YouTube each and every day. 56 matches is a ton to sort through. And so I'm going to try and limit myself to, again, five must-watch matches a day here in week number one. But man, the list gets long. I could point to over 10 matches in both the men's and women's singles draws tomorrow that certainly will entertain tennis fans everywhere. That said, when I'm looking at the best matches on the women's side, you probably have to start with two-time Australian Open champion Naomi Osaka's return to Melbourne. She, of course, didn't get an easy draw. She's taken on 16th-seeded Caroline Garcia, and look, Garcia wasn't as good in 2022 as she was in 2023, uh, other way around, wasn't as good in 2023 as she was in 2022. That doesn't mean she had a bad 2022 by uh, three 
I'm going to try that whole sentence again. Westhoff, give me a rewind sound effect, please. Again, let's try this one more time. It's not that she was bad in 2023. It's that she wasn't as good in 2023 as she was in 2022. And obviously that is what clouds, I guess, people's perceptions of her season last year. But look, she went 40 and 27 overall last season. That's the second, third, third most wins. I'm really screwing up this Caroline Garcia. I promise moving forward each and every day, we're going to clean these segments up. But again, you look for Caroline Garcia, 40 and 27 overall last year. It's the third most wins she's had in any given season. Trails just her standout 2022 where she won 44 matches, a really good 2017 as well where she won 48. The big number for her last season, career high hold percentage. She held serve 80.8% of the time. Now, she's perennially top 10, top 15 club as a server. That was top two all year long. Her and Sabalenka trading places. And when you're over that 80% hold percentage, that's elite of the elite. That's flirting with Serena Williams' power tennis country club level stuff. And obviously that make or break game style, the relentless aggression we see from Garcia behind her first serve. We see that in her return game as well. It's why she can be a little bit streaky. It's why some days the return's just not landing in the court. And again, obviously it is aggression versus aggression in Garcia versus Osaka. Naomi 1-0 in the career head-to-head, a 2-3 and win when these two faced off in the Melbourne second round here at the Australian Open back in 2021. Again, Naomi looked pretty good, especially when she was in rhythm against Korpats, against Karolina Pliskova in her two-match showing in Brisbane to start the year. Now she was broken two times in each of those matches, but when she could keep the ball in front of her, when she could play on her terms, play at her pace, and oftentimes when you have a first serve like her, you're going to have the ability to do so. She still hits the ball like Naomi freaking Osaka off of both wings. Relentless power, relentless aggression. Now the movement's not where it needs to be, although it did look bad, but it's not where it needs to be for her to compete at an elite level, I think, for seven matches in this event. Can we get it for one? We certainly got it against Pliskova. You can throw out the Korpats match. That's a completely different level. Obviously, the aggression Pliskova plays with, she's going to see similar aggression from Garcia. You're more confident in in the aggression and, dare I say, the offensive package Caroline Garcia brings to this match. She's just played more frequently, been more consistent with things, a better mover than Osaka, certainly entering this occasion on at Naomi's best. Obviously, she's better at executing her power game, a little more fluid on the return of serve, but... Yulene Garcia, I think that match has three sets written all over it. I feel like we're going to get at least one breaker. Again, I think that one's going to be tightly contested. I don't see either one running away with it. So certainly I would put that as match number one on the must-watch list uh, for day number two's action. Match number two on the must-watch list on the women's side. This one, of course, oh, dare I say, a little bit on the... Alex Gruskin personal watch list, but I also think Marie Bozhkova versus Linda Noskova is not only a fantastic storyline, and that Noskova one, when I say on the personal side for me, that's one we've been monitoring pretty frequently here, here, the 19-year-old former junior French Open champion, a rising talent, one of 36, 22 and under women's players we have in the women's singles draw in Australia this year, but it's a fantastic contrast because she is the more aggressive player. Her power tennis, her aggression, aggressive game style stands out in comparison to the counterpunching, reactive nature of Marie Bozhkova. That said, you can never underrate Marie Bozhkova's athleticism. It is always as good as advertised, as fluid as we have of a mover. 
in the women's game right now. Sneaky good at absorbing, redirecting pace. Sneaky good at beating you to the spot and snapping a backhand up the line or slap a forehand up the line at will. Again, it is a little bit pancakey in the contact points, but great slice, great drop shot. Comfortable volleyer can just do things to get Naskova stretched and uncomfortable trying to beat her to the spot. That said, Marie Boshkova last year, 68.6 hold percentage. It was a percent actually above her career average, still outside the top 25 hold percentage amongst top 100 players. I mean, again, Naskova's going to have opportunities to be aggressive. You look for Naskova, she's the exact opposite. You look for her hold percentage amongst top 100 players. She would still be a top 25 uh, club member, despite the fact that she's currently ranked outside of the top 25, the number 51 player in the world, holding 71.6% of the time. The average top 50 player right now holding 70.1. Again, she would rank in the top 25 in hold percentage. Boshkova, for what it's worth, elite. On the return of serve, you look at her return percentage last season. Actually, not as high as you would think. The return percentage, 38%. That's a top 15 number, but you'd figure she'd have to be top 10, top 5 to be a top 25 player. Maybe that's why her ranking right now sits at 35. Still, obviously, Noskova coming off of the big semifinal run uh, in Brisbane to kick off her season Good wins there over a similarly athletic player in Andriva, similarly physical player in Riera. Good win over someone in Kirstea who tries to beat you to the spot by going down the line. Niskova's got the ball game to do this. Now, you look for Linda Naskova in her career against top 50 players, 12-14 and 14 overall. That's really good for someone who turned 19 in November. 12-14 and 14 against the top 50. She went 7-10 and 10 against top 50 opponents last year. Now, here's your fun Bojkova stat for all of you listeners. She's 91-25 and 25 in her career against players under age 21. She's 14-0 against 21 and under players since the start of 2022. Her last loss, Clara Tossen, in the, uh, in the Luxembourg quarterfinals back in September of 2021. She beat Noskova 6-3 and three when these two faced off in Prague last year. Uh, excuse me, back in 2022 in that Prague semifinal. That was obviously our first tour-level introduction to Linda Noskova. She's gotten better since that moment, obviously up to number 51 in the world entering this event. And to back up her Brisbane final last year with a semifinal this year, they talk about coming through in the clutch. She's going to have opportunities to dictate in this match. This could very well be on her terms. Does she have the physicality, the consistency to do it for the two hours necessary? You have to against a Bojkova. That's the question of this match. Again, she is going to have some opportunities to dictate. I'm going to take Naskova to pull off the upset. I'll take Garcia in the first match. I'll take Naskova in the second one. Now, again, how far can Naskova really get? She's in the Sviantec, 16th of the draw. That's a tough lifestyle uh, for any player to have to deal with. So third round's probably the ceiling for her, but that would be a really good showing for the 19-year-old to kick off her 2024 semifinal in Brisbane. Beat a top 35 player in Bojkova here to kick off your gear in Australia as well. That's Honestly, my favorite match of the day, but I'll put it number two on my must-watch list. Number three, you like power tennis? Vekic versus Pavs. Anastasia Pavlichenkova taking on 21st-seeded Donna Vekic. Pavlichenkova 1-0 in the career head-to-head. That victory actually came in Tokyo in September of last year. 1-1, Pavlichenkova knocked off Vekic. Pavs has played some really good ball 
to start 2024 quarterfinalist in Adelaide got wins over Sinyakova, Haddad Maya as well. We saw her make a quarterfinal in Hong Kong where she beat Haddad Maya again at the end of last season, got wins over Naskova, Vekic, Alexandrova on her way to a Tokyo semifinal as well. Tight three-set loss at the U.S. Open to Svitolina in round two. She's playing top 50 ball. Once again, I don't think there's any if, ands, or buts about it. And back up to number 46 in the live rankings accordingly. It's been the opposite story for Donna Vekic of late, right? You look for Vekic. She really struggled down the season's home stretch, losing seven of her last eight matches. Her one win, a win over Habino in the Zhengzhou first round. But it's whom those losses were to. Not only the one-in-one extreme loss to Pavs, but losses to Lucia Tsarenko, Anna Blinkova, Sasha Vickery, a loss to Paulini round one in Montreal, Look, Vekic runs hot and cold. We know how well she can play her run to the San Diego final in 2022. Uh, Obviously indicative of that, her run to the Monterey title at the start of last season. Indicative of that, a reminder, last year at the Australian Open, she reached quarterfinals beating Samsonova uh, before getting knocked out by Sabalenka in the quarterfinals. It's a lot of points to defend for Donna Vekic. A precipitous decline, perhaps, awaiting her should... uh, should things not go accordingly at this week's Australian Open? And once those points fall off her resume, I am curious how far she'll fall. I mean, again, then points, a title to defend right away in February to start this year as well. So some pressure on Vekic to get the win. Pavs is just playing so freely. I honestly would lead Pavlochenkova towards another upset as well. Now, again, how high is the ceiling for Pavs? Well, I think the winner of this one, the next two matches, this is massively important to the draw. If you're going to follow any two results in day two closely just from a results standpoint, even if you want to skip the tennis, Vekic versus Pavlochenkova, and then Bedosa versus Townsend, which is the next match I want to discuss. The winners face off head-to-head. I made it a big focus in my women's singles draw preview discussing how I think the winner of that second-round match gets to the fourth round. All due respect to the Samsonova and Nisimova round one winner, neither, while their peak levels might be the highest of the six names, neither is playing well enough here to start 2024 to inspire any confidence. Can't say the same about... Paths. You can say the same about Vekic. Can't say the same about Paths. Can't say the same about Townsend or Bedosa either. And it's a first career head-to-head for the two. You look for Taylor Townsend. Yes, she's 12-39 and 39 against top 50 opponents for her career. And I know Bedosa's ranked outside the top 50. But she played really good 10. Top 50 tennis clearly in a three-set loss to Bernarda Pera uh, in her comeback match to start 2024. Taylor Townsend, 12-39 and 39 for her career against the top 50. She went four and five against the top 50 last year. She won four of her last seven, including a win over Haddad Maya at the U.S. Open last year. She looks fit as a fiddle to start the season. I'm expecting big things. I think this is going to be the best singles year of Taylor Townsend's career. Moves the ball so well around the court. Gets you stretched in the outer thirds. Does it quickly, too. You get no rhythm with her slices, her constant pressure moving forward. It's going to be a real test for Paula Bedosa, who, again, hasn't won a match since round one of Wimbledon back in July. Now has only played two matches since, but I thought she looked really good in a three-set match against Bernardo Pera. Didn't fade down the stretch of that match. Sustained her level pretty well. She's only played 24 matches in the last 52 weeks. For what it's worth, 11-2 and two against opponents ranked outside the top 20, even if there have been some struggles otherwise. And again, what do you expect out of a Paula Bedosa returning to the tour here today? Probably not that much, but 
I'm fascinated by that match. I'd always watch Taylor Townsend, a lefty who serve in volleys, who hits the slice, who just makes you uncomfortable. Heck of a competitor as well. Bedosa can do a lot of things on a court, such a fluid mover when she's healthy. That's going to be a fun contrast of styles. Townsend versus Bedosa, fourth on my list. And again, I think the winner of Vekic, Pavlachenkova, Townsend, Bedosa, whoever wins that round two match between the winners, I think that player's getting to the second week of a slam. And it's a great way always to start a season. So two day two matches you got to keep an eye on. And then last but not least, just because it's a great contrast of styles and you never really know with one of these players, seven-seeded Marketa Vandrosova taking on unseeded Diana Yastremska. Vandrosova, two and one in the career, had to head their last matchup, 22 2022 Dubai quarterfinal going straight sets the way of Vondrosova. The interesting stat in this one, yes, Diana Yastremska runs extraordinarily hot and cold. She hasn't beaten a top 20 player since Birmingham 2022. For what it's worth, though, 14-23 and 23 in her career against the top 20. For someone who runs so hot and cold, that's pretty consistent. I'm not getting blown out. I'm going to be in the fight. The best competition brings out the best in my performance. It's just something to keep an eye on for the 23-year-olds. Given, again, Von Throsova didn't look great in your her, her United Cup match. Yashkremska had to play some series ball to qualify for this event. Uh, again, according to Tennis Abstract, and just to run you through all the numbers, Von Throsova, an 80.2% favorite. It's a good litmus test for her. Can she be steady enough and physical enough to stare down the barrel of the power tennis and the inconsistency, the vacillations, dare I say, of Diana Yastrzemska. For what it's worth, Bedosa, 58.1% favorite over Townsend. Vekic, 52.3% favorite according to uh, over Pavlachenkova. Again, all these numbers according to Tennis Abstract. Noskova is actually a 54% favorite over Marie Boshkova. Imagine a lot of that's because of the Brisbane success. Garcia, 66.9% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract, over Naomi Osaka. For the nerds, quickly, and this is just rapid fire, quick thoughts on a couple of other matches. I've got seven on the list you should know about in what is, again, a 56-match day in terms of men's and women's singles competition in Australia. Haddad Maya versus Linda Fruvertova. 19-year-old's talented. I'll always watch her take on a top 10 seed. Kostyuk versus Claire Liu. Marta Kostyuk played great despite losing her match in whatever quarterfinals, I think it was, in Adelaide to Yelena Ostapenko. I think she might just have the breakout year we've all been waiting for. She's taken on an always tough American out in Claire Liu. I keep waiting for the Kaya Yuvan top 50 moment, excuse me, to happen. It hasn't. How healthy is Potapova? She had to withdraw from her week one event. That's a funky first-round matchup. Mira Andreeva, the 16-year-old, is going to get tested. Bernardo Pera is hitting the ball cleanly right now. It's a fun test. Again, how physical can the 16-year-old be? We'll find out. Speaking of big hitters, 19-year-old Diana Schneider taking on big hitting. Jasmine Paulini, the 26th seed. Paulini's got to be on upset alert because Dai Schneider can swing. But again, Paulini breakout season in 2023. A big slam here. 2024 might just consolidate her top 35 position. The other ones, purely for the nerds. I think Rebecca Masarova is better than her ranking. She'll get tested against Alexandra Sasnovich. Winner of that can absolutely win their round two battle against uh, Lucia Serenko or Lucia. Uh, I think Serenko actually won that match in three sets as of me recording this here on Saturday night. So I believe Serenko would be the opponent. Katie Valinets is taking on Anna Kalinskaya. I'm just saying, there's a word, world, excuse me, where Kalinskaya ends up in week two. 
And Volleynet doesn't have the biggest weapons, but it's a good litmus test. Just how well is uh, Kalinskaya playing right now? Something worth keeping an eye on, certainly. Uh, again, as you scroll through the results on day number two, that's all of your women's action, or at least the most notable matches. I think the thing's worth previewing. On the men's side, let's talk about the matches of the day. I got five more for you. Not sure how much depth I'm going to have in some of these because some of these matchups are pretty straightforward. But again, from a name perspective, you got to keep an eye on it, right? Like at the top of the must-watch list, I'm as intrigued, and I know I try to steer away from the mainstream at times, but I'm as intrigued by Tsitsipas Berrettini as anyone. Who knows how well either of those guys are playing right now? Yeah, Tsitsipas got a win over Steve Diaz at United Cup, but pretty straightforward 4-4 four and four loss to Zverev as well. I mean, again, was... Uninspiring to say the least down the home stretch of 2023 after winning the title in Mexico, uh, I think Los Cabos or wherever it was to kick off the North American hardcourt stretch. You know, disappointing losses for Pass certainly in Canada uh, to Monfi round one, Cincinnati, second match to Hercots, second round loss at the U.S. Open to Streaker, loses a Davis Cup match to Molchan, loses in Beijing to Yari, Umber in Shanghai, Fee in Antwerp, the Medvedev loss in Vienna, the Dimitrov loss in Paris, no shame in either of those. And obviously it was a little banged up to end the year, but you got some serious questions about Pass's level entering the year. Now, I don't have any questions about his serve, his plus one forehand, which last season had him as the highest ranked player by hold percentage amongst top 50 players on the ATP Tour. He's still number one over the last 52 weeks when you add the top 100 as well. You know what you're going to get from Pass as a floor. Like He's still going to have some opportunities to hit that serve, hit that forehand comfortably, but look... In theory, Matteo Berrettini should be able to push him with his the weapons he possesses and exploit that backhand return in particular that Tsitsipas so often struggles with. Now, for what it's worth, Tsitsipas 4-0 in the career head-to-head. It's a little bit misleading, 4-0 record. Tsitsipas a 7-6 in the third set win in their first encounter back in 2017, so you feel like you can throw that out. 6-7-6-4-6-3-7-6, he beat him in the 2019 first round at the Australian Open. Tsitsipas also win in Rome on clay, then 6-4 in the third. He beat him in United Cup to start last season. Yes, it's 4-0, but only one of the matches was straight sets. All of the matches have featured at least one tiebreaker throughout the course of it. It is tightly contested between these two. And again, we just haven't seen much Berrettini at all. In fact, obviously, heading into this Australian Open, the last time Matteo Berrettini played a match, Cincinnati, when he lost, uh, excuse me, U.S. Open, when he had to retire against Arthur Rinder Kanesh after beating Ugo and Bear in round one. Obviously, this is a guy who had an early exit in the Australian Open last year, losing round one to Andy Murray, but you don't have to go back far. 2022 semifinalist at this event to see to know about Berrettini having success in Melbourne. Still, Tsitsipas is the reigning finalist. That's a ton of points to defend, and at least it, while his results haven't been the most inspiring, he's played. Can't say the same about Matteo Berrettini. Haven't seen him since the U.S. Open Excellent litmus test to see how both guys compete against Tsitsipas 4-0 in the career head-to-head. All of them have been close. I would lean Tsitsipas just because I think he's executing the serve-forehand combination better than Berrettini right now with all other things assumed equal. Big serves, big forehands, quick points. That's the script of that match, as you can expect. Uh, Certainly one to put on the script for tomorrow. The exact opposite of that is going to be the match I have number two, Echeverry versus Andy Murray. And the 30th-seeded Tomas Martin Echeverry obviously made his first slam quarterfinal at Roland Garros last year. 
He also has played Andy Murray twice in his career already. The 24-year-old, one and one in his career, head-to-head with three-time major champion Murray, a win when they played in Indian Wells, 6-4 in the third last year. Echeverry, 6-2 in the third, knocked out Murray when they went head-to-head in Basel in October. Makes sense. Two very physical players. Not going to give you anything on the force. Not going to give you anything easy. Going to look to dictate with their forehand, sneak in behind him when the moment calls for it. But again, nothing discernibly attackable in either of their games. Yeah, second serves will hang short for both guys, particularly Murray at this stage of his career. But you can say that about just about every player we have on the ATP Tour, on the WTA Tour, in tennis in life. That's why it's a second, not a first serve. You know, again, Murray, how fit is he to start this season? The 36-year-old looked pretty darn good in a three-set loss to eventual champion Grigor Dimitrov in sets one and two, but clearly faded physically down the home stretch of that two-hour, 27-minute match. I feel like he's going to need at least two and a half hours in this one with Echeverry. Again, Tomas Martin Echeverry hasn't had the best hard court results of late either. You look for Echeverry uh, down the home stretch of last year. Actually, wasn't horrible. Like, you look at what he did post-Roland Garros on hard courts, all right, losses to Corda, Davidovich, Fokina in opening matches, Cincinnati, Canada, respectively. Straight set losses, not great, but those guys can play top 25 tennis when they're playing their best. Davidovich, Fokina certainly has had his moments. Lost to Stan Wawrinka in four sets in the U.S. Open. That's not a great loss, but I'll let it slide. Another loss to Corda in Zhuhai, whatever. Lost to Rude, 7-6 in the third, Beijing. That was a fantastic match for those of you that remember it. 6-4 in the third to Zheng Zhizhen in Shanghai. Not great, not horrible. Losses to Runa, Djokovic in Basel, Paris, respectively. Now, a loss to Machizuki in Tokyo. That's not great. He starts his year with losses 7-6 in the third to Mychek, 7-5 in the third to Shevchenko. Those aren't horrible losses. They're not great. They're not horrible losses. Like, again, more than anything, he's played a three-hour, nine-minute match and a two-hour, 56-minute match to start his season. And we know Andy Murray's pension for playing long matches. So, Buckle your seatbelts. I'm not sure what time that match is scheduled for, but I can look it up right now because I have the match calendar in front of me. They are one of the the evening matches, or their third match on at Kia Arena. You could wake up in the morning. This used to be my favorite feeling, especially during the Australian Open because this is when you get it. When you wake up in the morning and there's still a match on from the night before and as you're eating breakfast and getting ready to go to school, you get to watch that match. That was my favorite thing to do as a kid growing up. And actually, like, I'd be excited that first couple weeks of January getting back to school even though it was cold in the car as you tried to get in and get ready. And, you know, obviously, I mean, first of all, my brother and I had a car growing up. That's the ultimate privilege. I'm well aware of that fact. I will say Eric Ruskin was very quick to say, yo, you're the younger brother. I'm the driver. Go scrape that off the windshield. And I get it. It's a, it's a rite of passage. But you would I just remember being so cold and you're like, you're just sitting there. You're freezing to start your day. And I'll tell you what, it wakes you up. That's why it was a rite of passage because it really woke you up every morning scraping that ice off the car, which to get back to the point was not parked in the garage, but parked out on the driveway, again, fan, I'm immensely grateful for my childhood. But those are like the things I associate with January is watching the tennis, trying to stay in the car as long as possible, knowing, all right, the moment I have to go outside, I got to start scraping some ice off the windshield. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so anyways, 
Shout out to having that sensation back. Shout out to Murray Echeverry, which very well could be that first wake up morning match we have of the, uh, I guess you'll have him on day one. So we'll see who that is, but of the day two experience. Other matches in the must-watch category on the men's side. I think you got to put FAA and Dominic Team's first-round matchup in there by respect. The 23-year-old FAA, the 27th seed in this event, team unseeded, obviously. You know, neither guy comes in with a ton of rhythm. FAA losing his first match, albeit a very fun one, to a very much informed Daniel Altmaier uh, last week in Auckland. One Basel down the home stretch of last season. Like again, I thought he played well in Auckland. A six and five loss. He was up three zero to start that first set. Obviously, things got away from him. But Daniel Altmaier played elite tennis. I've never seen anyone hit the down the line one handed back in with as much consistency as he did on that day. Team qualified in Brisbane before the five and one loss to Rafa. Qualified in Paris, beat Stan before a loss to Runa quarterfinals Astana before a loss to Sebastian Ofner in three sets. The results have slowly but surely gotten better. He's a top 100 player, and the ranking says as much. A lot of uncertainty surrounding this match. Again, Felix has some weapons to rush Dominic team, take advantage of his core position, and get him in trouble. But I just don't know the level we're going to see from either of these guys. I'm leaning Felix just because, again, I thought he served, hit the forehand pretty well, albeit massaged it a little bit more than I remember in that Altmaier match. I'm not sure in either guy's level. Dominic Team 1-0 in the career head-to-head, but that matchup came on his way to his first major title at the 2020 U.S. Open team, a 7-6-6-1-6-1 round of 16 victory over FAA in New York again four years ago. I'll lean Felix, but your guess is as good as mine. Another match I have on here out of respect. I think Alex Diemenauer is going to beat Milos Raonic pretty comfortably. Demon top five in hardcourt wins last year. Beat Djokovic to start the season. But out of respect, excited to see Raonic's level. Diemenauer, a 4-4 four and four win over Raonic in their one career head-to-head in Brisbane all the way back in 2018, six years ago. And then last but certainly not least, first career head-to-head between Karen Hatchinov, Daniel Altmaier. I know Hatchinov lost his first match of the season in Hong Kong in three sets to Rusevori. Rusevori was playing lights out. Altmaier played lights out last week in Auckland before an injury forced him to withdraw from the event. If he's healthy, a great, again, I'm going to use this term, litmus test for what Hatchinov's level looks like. And remember, before coming off of injury, uh, before injuring himself last season, he made quarterfinals of Roland Garros, semifinals of the Australian Open, and made semifinals of the U.S. Open, the major prior to that. So... Prior to that injury layoff, you throw out that U.S. Open he had made, quarterfinals or further at his last three majors. He is always a real test, always a tough out, always a guy holding seat or better at major events because he has the physicality. Best of five is always the best for him. Hatchinov versus Altmaier is a fun first rounder just to keep on mind. Like if it's 9.30 p.m., no headline matches grabs your attention. That's the one to turn to. I think you'll enjoy that one because Daniel Altmaier is always a shot maker. For the nerds in on the men's side, Ben Shelton's much-watched TV. He's just so explosive. If this was four years ago, his match against Roberto Bautista Gu would probably be number one must-watch, but obviously it's a very different RBA. Fascinating to see how last year's quarterfinalist Shelton does at this event after the tough loss to Daniel in the semifinals in Auckland last week. Manorino Wawrinka, a lot of you would just want the chance to watch Stan, three-time major champion. I get it. 
I think Adrian Manorino is going to beat him pretty soundly. But again, Wawrinka on court, worth watching. Former Texas A&M All-American, USTA wildcard recipient Patrick Kipson going to take on Emil Rusevori. You know my soft spot for Rusevori. I enjoy watching Kipson as well. Good test for him. Gael Mofi is the perfect opponent. You're going to get to see him sprint, cover the cover track, hit outstanding passing shots because Yannick Hoffman throws the kitchen sink at you and puts all sorts of pressure on you as his opponent. Hoffman versus Mofi, really fun second round match, uh, first round match, day two match. And then last but not least, and this one might quietly be one of my favorites as well, Denis Shapovalov versus Jakub Menchik. If you haven't watched the 18-year-old Menchik, pop, firepower defines his serve, his plus one game. The guy cruises through service game, challenger final to start his year, comes through qualifying to get into this Australian Open as well. I'm not sold on the rest, and Damien Kust and I discussed that on Friday's mini-break podcast, but like he's a decent athlete, good first step, can slide into and out of his ball. Like Not the worst on that in terms of hard courts, but the technique's a little funky. It's a little handsy. It's a little wristy. He'll pop things up, and look, the best version of Shapovalov has some serious weapons to test Menchik in a way that he just hasn't been tested before. Now, Shapovalov is far from his best in his first match loss to Seb Ofner last week. Needs he needs to step up. He wasn't, the serve looked soft. It was just, it was a rough outing for Shapovalov after a long layoff. Obviously, he'd been out since Wimbledon. Menchik's got real weapons to push him as well. That said, he's got some weapons to push an otherwise untested Menchik for the most part. Yeah, I made a third round at the U.S. Open. That's really all he's done at the tour level to date. It's a fascinating first round matchup. I'm really excited for Shapovalov versus Menchik, the last match I would bring up again in what is a 56 match day two at the 2024 Australian Open. Of course, we will recap it all over on the Mini Break podcast feed. So if you haven't, go subscribe to that show. Make sure you like, rate, subscribe, review here. And of course, all of our Crack Rackets content, including our Crack Rackets YouTube channel, where we're going to have more video podcasts available for all of you listeners moving forward. That said, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel West. For the of any job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. With that said, for the fantastic super producer Daniel Westhoff, our, and all of us here, excuse me, at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We hope you all enjoy day two of the 2024 Australian Open. And you know what we say hey, great shot, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.